Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. Hello, Mark. A little later, we'll be talking about everything new on Rocks Back Pages, including this week's audio interview, which is a 1999 conversation with Tam Payton, erstwhile manager of the Bay City Rollers. We'll talk about new library pieces. We will touch on the Cranberries, which is the free feature of the week. But first, I would like to introduce and welcome our very special guest, Kathy Unsworth. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Kathy. Thanks for having you. me. Well, it's our treat. It's our honour. So thanks for coming. You are the queen of London noir, among other things. <laughs> <laughs> Even though your, your hair is not noir. It's not it? at all well, noir Can you describe the, the wonderful it's shade? It's sort of bright acidic yellow with a little <laughs> with a little bit of orange in the front where I was bleaching out the black that was there before that kind of turned into a reverse David Bowie man who fell to earth or at least in my imagination <laughs> that's what you asked for <laughs> yeah. stylist I, reverse I must point out there will be photographic evidence, evidence of this of the reverse on, on, I was about on, 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 yeah. on the side if this yeah. seems too sort of teasing you will actually <laughs> see uh, pictures of Kathy's magnificent I, 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 I saw Kathy only what about two weeks ago and the hair was a completely different colour. It was, but it was difficult. It was a challenge to transition there. <laughs> <laughs> You're here principally, Cathy, to talk about defying gravity. Yes. Which is the... Well, it's not just the autobiography of, but it is purportedly the autobiography of Jordan Mooney, or Jordan, as most of us Jordan, know her. Um, know, yeah. And Jordan, for anyone listening who doesn't know, Jordan... Really invented punk rock, didn't she? she? Did, I mean, really. Adam Ant says that. Somebody yes. else says that in the book. I mean, she was a pivotal, incredibly important figure in the whole world of Malcolm McLaren and the Sex Pistols yes. and the King's Road. And this is a, a, a an astonishing book. I I, I sort you. of opened it not knowing exactly what to expect. Was it just going to be Jordan's story? In fact, it's it's much more than that. It's I think going to become one of the most important sort of punk texts, if oh, you like. You've done you. an incredible job. There's so much information in there. There's incredible pictures and stories. And just uh, all the places, people, scenes, the timeline is phenomenal. Tell us about the book and how you came to be involved with, with Jordan and become our collaborator on well, the book. Well, yeah, it's an interesting story and it's a mutual friend of ours called Roger Burton. He runs the Horse Hospital in London, which I'm sure you two know is mm, the, about know the last independent art space left that hasn't been turned into luxury flats. And he had previously worked with Vivian Westwood. He designed the World's End shop that we see today mm -hmm. and he also did Nostalgia of Mud, the shop that she used to have in the West End but which okay. I think only lasted about a year before the local residents got so angry it got closed down. Anyway, he'd helped Jordan. Jordan did an auction of her clothes, all the stuff she had left from Sex and Seditionaries and World's End. The stuff that wasn't falling apart in the it, attic. Yes, the yeah. stuff that she magically brought back to life with the help of some leather restorer and, <laughs> and just her own personal magic and and she had been approached a number of times, I think, to do her story, and she was really unsure about it because, as you probably can't imagine, Jordan is quite a self-depreciating character, and she was uncomfortable of being the sole person in the spotlight of this. She was also a bit uncomfortable about, I think, the nature of journalists approaching her and, you know, whether she could actually enjoy having a collaboration with them. Right. 
So Roger's read all my books and he's hosted most of my launch parties and been a really good friend for, for the past 20 or so years. So he suggested that I might be a better idea as I've got my novelistic skills as well as, you know, my infant grounding in music journalism. Absolutely. But also I think, you know, obviously the appearance of the hair... You know, the first thing we talked about, <laughs> what colour was that that you used, you know. Yeah. Obviously, that we had that in common. And so I just went down to Seaford to meet Jordan in her natural environment. And we got on very well and had a very funny day talking and laughing about various things. And she said, I think I probably would be able to work with you. I mean, it seems like I would have a laugh with you and that would be, yeah. you know. what. But so she cool. was... I did her, obviously, you sort of audition for these things, and I did her a sample chapter. And the thing that I was really excited about, which was what we talked about earlier, was what leads up to her walking up to the King's Road the first time mm. and getting her job, and what was her background like in in the, the South Coast in Brighton and, yeah. and the, the amazing club scene that was going on there in that really fascinating time, that late 60s into the early 70s, that sort of clockwork orange time. Sure. Mm-hmm. This is long before Brighton and, oh, and, long and those before. T- become sort of associated, so associated with, with gay culture. I mean, it was already, there was a, a strong gay scene there, but it wasn't like a gay capital in the way no, it is now. No, and what it really was, as I came to discover when we talked to some of her friends from that time, was it was more of weirdo's sanctuary. <laughs> <laughs> weirdo's it, sanctuary. Was, it was her, she had a lovely friend called Anton Binder who spoke very eloquently about this period because he remembers and he said it was an edge world which is a great yeah it was a that's place a kind of Ian Sinclair type it phrase, is liminal edge world where weirdos like him he wasn't gay but he was obviously a sensitive young man like you two <laughs> probably were who liked he David Bowie was his style sure. hero and he liked that slightly you know gender bending look which was a big thing from that time. Yeah. And if you went to a normal beer boys pub, as we all know from that time, you'd get your head kicked in yeah. for, for looking. Exactly. So he was safer hanging out. And there was also a number of girls down there who, who was straight, who also, he, he said it was good for him, you know, in that time. It was just basically a place for people who didn't fit in to yeah. be safe. Yeah. And because the gay community always gets there first, they've always had to. And, and one of the big stories in this book is this path through these wonderful gay clubs, yeah. some of whom are unchanged since the 1940s, and that's a wonderful Yes, it's a great part of the story, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it is such an archetypal story. It's a story that would be familiar from kind of the world of Andy Warhol in New York. Yeah. There's this, the small-town misfit mm. who gets out of the small town, goes to the big city, yes. completely reinvents him or herself. And Jordan, I mean, because I've only met her once, and, and this was probably like five years ago, and you just wouldn't have known from meeting her now, the vet in Seaford, <laughs> what she, how important she'd been, how, how truly iconic she had been. I went to art school just after King's Road between 74 and 78 mm. and I probably walked past the shop yeah. countless times I never once went in well, I was just such scared. a wuss and she was so often standing in the doorway <laughs> glowering at you she scared the shit out of me there's a brilliant picture in the book of some bloke and I hope it's not me. It probably is you. I mean, it's amazing anyone went in there. I suppose you had to look as outrageous as she did to go in. But she did look so extraordinary. And the thing is, she did arrive fully formed, you see. She she didn't reinvent herself from London. She was already like that. She shaped it in so many ways. She did. There was a pub 
on the corner of Beaufort Street, the Roebuck, and that's yes, where a lot of them used to hang out. So I used to go in there because it was a good place to buy speed in those days on the pool table, pool room upstairs. First mention of drugs. <laughs> Eleven minutes. <laughs> Eleven minutes in, and it, again, should be in there. And, and uh, I mean, the only contact I had with them was Sue Catwoman told me to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might have been lucky that's for high, you. That's high <laughs> praise. <laughs> that's that's endearing. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh dear, oh dear. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but she, I mean, the pictures alone in this book are extraordinary. Yes. And that time was was extraordinary. And as you say, she came into it kind of fully formed. Fully formed. formed. She, and she, she went on the train from Thiefer to London with these outrageous non-outfits in many cases. Yeah. And they sometimes had to put her in her own carriage for her own safety. Yes, yes. So there's the narrative, there's the first-person narrative, Jordan, telling her story, but interpolated with, blocked out quotes from all kinds of different people. Whether it's Paul Cook of the Sex Pistols or Peter York, the writer, who's always interesting on that time. Were those all new interviews done for the book? Yes, they were all done for the book. That's what I figured. The only thing that wasn't is that I've got a couple of quotes from Derek Jarman that John Savage let me have, because obviously we couldn't... He's not here, exactly. Um, Although I think he's sort of worth watching over with a with a friendly eye. I'm <laughs> sure, you know, and it, it, it's great to read about how Jarman sort of so took to her. And I mean, she was this this very unlikely muse figure for the whole scene. Was she was sort of anti muse? Well, I think way. what it was for somebody like him. I think he was quite a shy person, wasn't he? And to see somebody who had the courage to just totally transform themselves and live their life the way she wanted to. I think that was the thing that that was really special about her for Derek and what he... And how he asked her to help him sort of be his guide to this this lovely sort of going through the looking glass world into the punk world and and to find out about that and to make that the foundation for Jubilee. Yeah, I I was offered a part in that. I turned it down. Do you regret that now? Yes. Yes. <laughs> he, wouldn't, he wouldn't put out for Derek or something. Well, because his assistant director lent me his flat in Butler's Wharf, and I went to a lot of Derek's parties. Which yeah. were interesting. There's a lot of yeah Butler's Wharf action going on in there as well. It's a, well, no, this is the amazing thing about Jubilee for us now, isn't it? To see how London looked at the time. Yeah. Because it's such a bomb site, you never. Yeah, I think it's a terrible movie. I, I mean, it's the worst film I think he made in some way. I can't even remember. I, I actually, it's, it's, I think it's stood up better than you yeah. think when you look at it again now. Okay. Because of that, and also I really like his central premise of Dr. D, Elizabeth I's yes. alchemist. John taking D. of like where yeah. I now live. Exactly. So John D's ghost haunts the, the Dr. Street, D has it? followed me and Jordan around. We kept, kept, Every time we would think of somebody, I she would say, Dr. D, it's coming through a scrying mirror, and they would come. They would yeah. get in touch with her on Facebook. That's yeah. what I mean by I think Derek Jarman was keeping an eye on things. Yeah, and, exactly. and Dr. D was the magical conduit. But I just like the idea of him taking Elizabeth I to see what was going on in the time of Elizabeth II. Yeah. I thought that was yeah. a really brilliant, brilliant yeah. idea for a story. Yeah. And, yeah, absolutely. So I think what's so fascinating and compelling about the book is just you realise how a scene that might have struck one then as quite well fully formed if you like just how it was composed of so many different elements stra- elements and strands and you, when, cultural yeah. strands when you say like Peter York and Paul Cook they you know you it shows get how all encompassing like people, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. it was every every person who 
perhaps had never had their say before, like little Helen, mm. you know, all yeah. these people that would really have been marginalised, especially yeah. the 70s is quite a brutal time for women and, yes. Yes. and anyone who looks different and yes. obviously anyone who isn't white, British, moustache-wearing, flair-sporting, <laughs> you know, pillar of... of, of I mean, it, it, even within sort of youth culture, it was dangerous and difficult. I mean, the time when certainly kind of the, the first wave of punks were being harassed on the King's Road by teddy boys and mm. so on and so forth. After the Jubilee party, what Leiden was mm. beaten up really badly. You almost killed yes. it, could have been. It, it was really bad. I mean, I remember England as being a really pretty grim and ghastly place. Yeah. There's some great pictures of uh, in there of Jordan walking down King's Road when it just doesn't look like it looks like that. <laughs> I mean, we have unimaginable wealth and prosperity yes. compared to those times, I think. Um, yes. Although that, I think we might have brought back the sort of horrible feelings in the air that, that were going on at the time of the late 70s. When it, I think politically things are much more terrifying now than they were then. I mean, the things yeah. were falling to pieces, but it but wasn't... people were terrified then that we were going back to the 30s, weren't they? Yeah, well, that's, yeah. that's true. That's you true. know, the three-day week and the collapse of the currency that they thought was going to happen. And yeah. Yes. All these things feed into that energy around punk, and a lot of people sort of said that in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Yes. How it all became... It's great to have a book that makes everything so vivid and brings it all to life again because I think punk has become so sort of enshrined and almost sort of fossilised. It's all, yeah, it's been made into a sort of, yeah, and this, this, a brand. this makes it very, very real. It's about real people and how they got on the mm. sharing flats and, you know, sort of three of them in a, in a tiny bedroom yeah. and all this, all this kind of, kind of kinky, pervy stuff going on. It's very, what I like is it's in many ways the details are quite pedestrian sometimes, you know, mm. because it was still so it was really yeah. still There's so a, small and intimate. Yeah. I mean, There's a strange innocence about yes. it, isn't there? I mean, exactly. uh, to some extent, Viv Albertine's first book sort of yes. t- touched on that too. She's come from quite a middle class sort of angle to it, but you know it's a scrappy old time. And also the other thing we forget in those days is you could sign on the doll for ages. Yes, it was you, much easier to exist, wasn't it? It really was. You could get council flats or squats yes. and so on and so forth, mm. which allowed you to experiment with 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 stuff. Yeah, I it, mean Jordan at one point is living next door to Buckingham Palace. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Can you believe that at That's the time just of surreal, the Jubilee? Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's surreal. I mean, now now she'd be in like Woolwich or something. Exactly. But, I mean, I think I think that's a really good point. I would never have had the guts to sort of dress like that or go into sex or sedition or anything. I mean, I just felt I was just far too timid and I wasn't likely to take it yeah. that far. I mean, I, mean, you I regret were young, that to some extent. You, you were younger. I mean, I'm exactly of that. I mean, like Johnny Rotten is one day older than me, right. you know, so I'm absolutely of that sort of thing. I didn't get punk at all. I mean, I did eventually. I got the ideas behind it. I never liked the music much. Not even the pistols? Yeah, well, I saw, I saw their third ever show. They played my art school. And the, actually, it's weirdly, I thought the bass player was the best musician in the band. And of course, that is Matlock. And I, lo- I love their records, actually. I, th- I, I still... I, some, some of that, that album is terrific. And some well, of the I just don't think it great. dates, does it? No, um, it doesn't date at all. But I was rapidly driven away by the actual sound of most of those bands and just basically embraced black music as my sort of mm. alternative. But like I said, it was happening right under my nose, and I was just too scared to go in the shop. And the only person who got it in my year 
was Jill Tipping, who's Edwin Pounce's wife. Oh, the lovely Jill. Yeah, yes. she, 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 she was the only person who genuinely got punk and embraced it. Well, the rest of us were fast. Well, it's quite female-driven, isn't it? I mean, you get into into the nitty-gritty of it. It's Stacey, yeah. it's Jordan, it's the Slits. There's all these people yes. that, that really didn't have an equal say in things before. That's one of the things... It I was like. a huge explosion of women playing music. Yeah. You know, not, not just the Slits, but, I mean, with X-ray specs yes. and so on and so forth. Firing, yeah, and, and looking and... Penetration and looking yeah. the way they wanted to look at them, not no stylists telling them <laughs> how to present themselves. Yeah, no. I mean, yeah. and that was quite intimidating for a sort of an effete middle class yeah. boy like myself. <laughs> yeah. But I had, I mean, I had really loved you know, the Stooges, the Velvets, mm. the usual kind uh-huh. of trajectory, if you like. So I sort of understood when I first started hearing about the Pistols in in seventy five. I sort of understood what this might be about. It was yeah. an undoing of sort of a long haired culture you know hippie culture it was but i never imagined that it i thought it would be a flash in the pan yeah. I thought it was a novelty this is a novelty thing and then we'll just be back to sort of emerson lake and palmer at wembley arena and and so that was what was so exciting it's, i mean it's, in itself it was a flash in the pan it lasted no time at all punk as we sort of really regard it is a couple of years l- max late yes. 75 to the end of mm. 77 yes, really really but the way in which people then chose to make music Put music and and behave, and the Ca- little record labels that all, all came out—that that, that whole independent, absolutely the, the DIY cat culture. was out of the bag for a while. Anyway, mm. for, for, for a good stretch, right to the mid eighties. Yes, mm. um, it had had a really—I mean, I, I'd say I'm mean, post-punk. Obviously, the name is on the tin, you know. Yeah. But but absolutely carried on from what what let's say the Buscocks did with Sparrow Scratch and yes. so on and so forth. Mm. And in the early electro bands, you know, yeah. the, the, the human leagues and so on of this world, I think, again, followed directly from yeah. the thing. And in terms of appearance, I mean... You, and when, also, yeah, we shouldn't really at all discount what Vivian did because, yeah. I mean, I studied fashion, bloody hell. I soon came to realise I was never going to make it in that world because <laughs> I come from Yarmouth, didn't I? She, <laughs> she is the yeah, but only, then Jordan came from Seaford. No, but fashion is... <laughs> a, 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 she, I, honestly, Vivian is incredible and she's the only person from her background that has ever made it as a woman in that business. Right. You know? Yeah. And because she wasn't trained, that, and because she, her genius is natural, she does these things that normal designers don't go, like, that looks really nice. I'll go into the V&A and find out how they made clothes right. look in the 17th century, because yes. I want that cut. Mm-hmm. I yes. want... And Michael Collins, who, yes. was one, who worked with Jordan, he's says... He's a major voice. He's a major voice and the most hilarious one, too. He said, she, you know, she used to just drape things on him, pin them on him to see how... It just a length of fabric would move before she cut anything, and her experimental genius. Mm. And now she you know she's one of the most loved. She's Dame Vivian Westwood, but, <laughs> but I mean, honestly, nobody, especially from her background and the time that she mm. lived through, has ever done as well as she has. So, yeah. flipping crowns off to Vivian. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Tell us how, because we, we can talk about how you sort of moved into becoming a music writer from from that era. You were in Yarmouth. Yeah. I mean, what, what were you, I studied, when did you want to 
write about music? When did you first start writing? Well, I was reading the music press avidly. I was, I was an art student in Yarmouth. I was studying fashion, actually. Yeah. I, was, I, think I can think about clothes. I can get good ideas for clothes. But the trouble is I'm not very good at making them, the actual construction <laughs> side. The stuff that Vivian and Jordan are really good at, because Jordan's a fantastic dressmaker. Her mum is, too. And she, she did, in fact, knit some of those mohair jumpers that they had. And, right. and Vivian had her army of knitting ladies, which I find hilarious. Brilliant. All the knitting. <laughs> ladies around London anyway but I was better at writing I thought it was the thing that I was always good at so I took this course from from being in Yarmouth Art College I went to London College of Fashion to do fashion journalism and PR and that's when I thought in Yarmouth I still thought oh, maybe I could have done design because everyone sort of came from a similar background to me there was just when I went to London, that's when I saw what the class system really means. Because, yeah, you know, sure. I had a girl in my class who was like, oh, God, Mummy's only given me a £1,000 for Ascot. What am I going to do? That's only one dress. <laughs> that's when I felt, you know, more of, yeah, <laughs> this world isn't for me. But luckily they gave you work placements and, you, and there was a lady who had been on the course who had her own PR company and she gave me a job helping her doing the press for Reading Festival, which mm-hmm. which was on its... This what is just This is the two years prior to Vince taking it over and okay. it becoming... This is the last two... Last, the metal years. The first the one wasn't too bad because it was the Ramones and the Stranglers. Okay. And I think Iggy was on that bill as well, but then the next year was the atrocity of meatloaf Bonnie Tyler and Starship with <laughs> bikers throwing huge bottles of piss at the stage <laughs> those so, were the days yeah. while I was doing the first year I talked to a lot of music journalists and found out that the editor of Sounds Tony Stewart one of your guests in the last yes. few weeks yes. a lovely time yeah. that he was very keen on taking on students and he, he definitely wanted there to be young voices on his magazine yeah. he so I rang him up and said, could I come for an interview? And he said, what are you doing a lick-ass job like PR <laughs> 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 And I thought, I can't remember how I replied, but I love music, Tony, that's the thing. And he went, all right, I'll give you a try. And he gave me a try, and I worked on the news desk with Hugh Field uh, for two weeks, and okay. he was a brilliant teacher, and he told me his Jimi Hendrix's knob story, which will stay with me forever. <laughs> and... They kept me on and, and I worked for Sounds as a freelancer until the sad demise and then went over to Melody Maker and had a few years on that. Mm-hmm. I was have to ask you, what was he filled as his Jimi Hendrix knob well, story? It was at a free festival in, in Lincolnshire and he just said he saw Jimmy unleashing and it was like a fire hose. <laughs> 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 just kept going on and on. <laughs> And that's the way he described it was like, you know, if you don't know, he's got a very gleeful way about him. It's like a little imp telling you a story. Yeah. Well, we must have, he, he's one of our, you know, he's a friend of ours too. Get him on the phone. We get him yes. on the phone. Get that <laughs> Jimi Hendrix story yeah. in no, full. No, no, Cynthia Plastercast reports that Jimi had by far the largest member well, of the We've seen yeah. the pictures of yeah, the cast, haven't yeah. yes. we? I mean, it's not wrapped around a fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I digress. We digress. We do digress. So it sounds, and indeed, Melody, you you wrote, you actually wrote quite a lot about sort of goth type. Well, I was a Were you assigned that? Was that your beat? Well, (laughs) I I guess I kind of carved it out 
you know, there were lots of other people who liked that music there, apart from me. But so the first piece we've got of yours in the almost famous slot on the homepage is this magnificent sort of overview, a kind of chronicle of 80s it's goth, chronicles. Yeah, goth chronicles. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a long piece about everyone it's from terrific. Bauhaus to you know, the birthday party. Yeah. Oh, I think that was for, well, at the end of the 80s, we did our sounds looks back at the 80s, right. and I got I, gifted okay. that. I yeah. thought the really interesting thing about it was that you showed that its roots were much broader in terms of different sorts of music and so on and so forth yeah. than we now perceive it. Now we think Fields of Nephilim, etc. You know, but you mentioned like the Cramps, uh, the, the Birthday Party, a whole, oh, yeah. bu- a whole bunch of bands who probably now wouldn't be regarded as goth bands, but you place them in that context. And that's oh, really definitely. interesting. What was brilliant about the Cramps was that they divulged all their sources and they, yes. they yeah. told us about these amazing wild mad rockabilly records that they yeah, were into. Exactly. And films and all kinds of yes, stuff. I mean, every all the stuff them. that fed into yeah. it. And in fact, the, the uh, front cover of Jordan's book is done by Graham Humphreys, who's also worked with the Cramps. Oh, and of course it's Graham Humphreys. I remember him doing stuff at the NMA. And he did yes. the, that 3D cover for Gravest yeah, Hits. Gravest Hits. So the Cramps are really yeah. pivotal, and the birthday party. I mean, yeah. I don't think anyone looked cooler than the birthday party then did they you, were a big you would agree party. with me on that part. <laughs> yeah I, I i was a big fan and, and, and that I, swampy bluesy sound that underpins it and completely yeah i mean it was it was gothic i think nick if he was sitting here would probably slightly bridle at the word goth <laughs> lumped in with that but they were i mean i went to the back cave i mean with his nick hair was that high it was the highest goth <laughs> hair of all it was. he was the king of the goth he was. And as, I don't think Susie likes the word no, either, but, either, but, but her hair also, I mean, they looked brilliant. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yes. there was a lot of bands with black hair, let's get on this. And they, yeah, not all of them looked as stylish as, as Nick or Susie did, no, actually. no. So it's a great, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a fantastically useful piece for anyone sort of studying that <laughs> genre. MA in you, you even <laughs> pinned down. Me, there you, will be people you, doing it. You even pinned down the first use of the oh. word in the piece, which is fascinating. Punk gothic. Punk gothic. Yeah, from UK yeah. to K. Yeah, How good is that? Yeah. yeah. So, well, I was really excited when I found that holy nugget in the bound <laughs> issues that you probably have in here somewhere. Well, no, but. Yeah. Well, I was looking for because you also talk about the uh, in Curtis' death May eighty and the, the this the man fe- died for you mm. um, and we haven't got that issue yeah <gasps> well we're gonna have to get Hugh Fielder will have it he he'll, will he'll provide it to us yeah. Yeah. But no, I mean, the research for the piece was he obviously spent mm. days going through the I sound archive. I had all those bounds issues. That I think maybe that's the beginning of my wanting to like not just write about the music but everything around it and yeah. how yeah. it all connects. And yeah. yeah, well, and the Jordan book is such a sort of testimony to that. Um, so, yeah. so but how gothic did you look yourself? I in had, those, yeah, those I was pretty full goth. on. Yeah, <laughs> goth, goth <laughs> I was pretty. What's Byronic. that seaside town in Yorkshire, which has the Whitby? That, that's that's where Dracula came ashore, of course. Mm, right, and when you yes. go there, you just think, oh God, Bram Stoker, he didn't have to make any of this up. It all rolled <laughs> off the North Sea towards yeah. him. But he did. It, it was in a library in Whitby where he found the book about Vlad Dracula. Ah. So there's yeah. And that's why every year... Every year and your yeah. latest novel it's a, strays into this... Strays into... into this territory. Well, it's called it? That Old that Black, Black Magic. Magic. And you don't yeah, get much more goth than that. And it, <laughs> its setting is 
is actually in the cradle of black metal, as we were discussing earlier. We this were. Tiny we little were. village. Black country. That's right. <laughs> this tiny little village in the black country. <laughs> 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 Fantastic! Um, I also loved the Dick Dale piece. I thought I thought that, oh, that, that, Dick, that was really good. Oh, Dick, hats off to him! Yeah, we oh. yeah. what? A couple of weeks ago? No, so sad. Yeah, yeah. It? it was very, very recently. Yes, I can't keep up with the, the people we're yeah. losing. No, but it's, it's, a, a, it's a great conversation. I hugely uh, enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, well, I, well, I proofread it when we posted on the site, and I, I hugely enjoyed it. I mean, he came over as very. He comes over as a very lovely. interesting character. Yeah, I mean, I met him and Link Ray, and that, that's two. The tired giants that tick. Dale got this tremendous kind of career boost late. I mean, he's in his fifties at this point, and Pulp Fiction comes out with 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 Lou on it, the extraordinary instrumental. I mean, he was the king of the surf guitar, but by this point, he had kind of almost like. Quite sort of long hair, and he didn't like a Hell's Angel, didn't he? He had like a ponytail. He didn't look anything like he did in like 1961. But he looked scary, didn't he? Yeah, he was and sort of this kind of desert figure. Could have been like Mad Max or something. He had that kind of following as well. I mean, he's also kind of huge. I mean, Jimi Hendrix always quoted him as being a huge influence on him. And yeah. he talks about Hendrix in the piece, yeah. of course. So it's, it's great. What about the? I don't, I don't remember the Kelly Osbourne piece. That's probably because I didn't proof it. Well, I picked that. <laughs> I picked that partly because another link to the black country. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's 2003. Kelly Osbourne launching a, a somewhat abortive attempt as a pop career, and it was interesting to me to read that again because I had met Kelly when she was still an obnoxious little child, essentially. Mm. I went to, this would have been about 99, I think I flew to Chicago to meet with her parents. There was some idea of I might help assist Ozzy with his book. And all I remember was arriving there and, and uh, come down and have lunch with the Osbournes. And the programme was hadn't launched at that point. So I came down and sat there and... Jack and Kelly, they were all flapping around. It was impossible to have a conversation. You know, Mama Sharon sitting there, <laughs> Ozzy just sort of fairly catatonic, and 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 Kelly just being like, <laughs> like the sort of archetypal kind What's of. What's he brat. doing? Is colouring so, in? Yeah, well, that was my favourite bit of the. Well, what I remember is like the next morning I had I was I, come and have breakfast, just the two of you, and have breakfast with Ozzy, and and I remember sitting there, and, and the, the waiter came up and said, "What would you like to eat?" And I some bullshit about granola or something probably in coffee and, and oh, there was a long silence from Ozzy <laughs> <laughs> and the guy said sir sir what, what, can I get you anything and he just went cheese <laughs> <laughs> and at that point I thought this book might be a bit of a struggle because <laughs> <laughs> when, when we were in Los Angeles in the early 2000s we had lunch with with, with, with Sharon, with Sharon. Which is still with a view to you doing the book. It, it yeah, still, still in contention. Peed out by then, and 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 she was great. We went. To, she took us to Morton's in Hollywood. Morton's Steakhouse very, in Beverly Hills. Yeah, and she basically just swore like a trooper throughout the meal. Oh, that fucking cunt, Billy Corgan. I mean, it's, it's like, it's like it, was, it was literally just just it tiring. Really was. And, and you see, you see all these permatant execs like yeah. turning around, blinching. You know. yeah. I, I started rolling the cigarette. And said, oh fucking hell! My husband smokes. So it's a bed's full of fucking tobacco. <laughs> 
I, and we both really well you already loved her first I, I, bad I, I, language uh, 35 <laughs> minutes courtesy of Sharon I was absolutely charmed by her yeah. she, she was she was a, anyway. a, a hoot but so, so but no, I just, tell, tell us about meeting oh, Kelly Osborne. I was Osborne really interested to meet yeah. her just well obviously what is it like having those tea for your parents <laughs> Where, I mean, how long have you got how can you imagine it <laughs> <laughs> and I found her really endearing, actually. I, yeah. I really enjoyed meeting well, her. She, she was lovely. What, what is the status of Kelly Osborne in 2019? I have an absolutely no idea. No. Yeah. No. no. Alive. <laughs> she made it through those. She made I mean, it through. They were extraordinary. Those. There's another child who just who had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Yes. It, Amy? Well, and I rem- and she was there, and she was very taciturn and mm. was not getting involved. Jack was sort of hyper- hyperactive. Kelly so was whinging about not having enough money to spend in the gift store, and the other one was very morose and sullen and not playing ball and then so the reason the book didn't happen it happened many years later was lo and behold the Osborne suddenly took off and was the biggest show on on MTV and that the older girl didn't take part in it at no. all. I don't no, think. No, she didn't. No. no. She never appeared And that well. didn't surprise me, having having been, you know, with Swiss Family Osborne. Uh, <laughs> 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 Those are the three featured pieces, but the main thrust of this is, please do check out this remarkable book, Defying Gravity, Jordan's Story. And stay with us, please, Kathy, because we're going to just slide through everything else that's kind of new. The free feature of the week is about the cranberries. Only f- not because any of us really love the cranberries, <laughs> um, but, but because uh, there is a sort of posthumous album, there's a cranberries album coming out this month called Fittingly In The End. Dolores, the singer, died a little over a year ago, drowned, very sadly drowned in a bath in a London hotel. And so we just thought we'd kind of revisit the story of the Cranberries. And it's an extraordinary story of this little band that came out of nowhere in Ireland, just outside of Limerick. And they appear to be just this kind of, oh, like another indie band that Melody Maker wrote about. And indeed, the first piece we've got is 1991 Everett True goes yes. to Limerick to, yeah. to meet them. And he's comparing them to Gunkolto Twins and things like that. They became a really huge band. Yes. And in the end, that was probably the undoing of her psyche. Did, did you have any I'm, any dealings with them or any? What was the mood on the in the press at that time about a band like the Cranberries? I think I was working for Melody Maker when Everett yeah. made his first foray over there, and <laughs> yeah, I guess coming from being a tiny little band in rural Ireland to to this big stages in America would yeah. do something quite shattering yeah. to a person's psyche. And I'm sure you don't want me to say this, but the only story I have about Dolores really is that she's the only person who walked out on an interview with my friend Anne Scanlon who's yes. about the most sympathetic to women interview you mm-hmm. know that you could ever hope to have and I still can't work out to this day what, what upset her them? because I think Anne was trying to talk about traditional Irish music with her which is not something you would imagine I think she took something the wrong way and just got up and left and it's it's astonishing and still an enormous yeah. shock when, when she died last year Mm. Um, it is a shock when but they were huge I mean Zombie was a, I still think it's a rather wonderful record actually I'm not sure um, I've ever known you listen to a single thing if you can done. if you can sort of take the yodelling <laughs> with, with a sort of <laughs> with a sort of tongue in cheek
they were in that slightly diaphanous indie post They did start off sort of cocktailish, yeah. but then they went more... Went much more mainstream, more kind like of. garbage, maybe. I don't know, more yeah, rocky, yeah. yeah. And big, it became very big in America. Anyway, there are three pieces, and the last one is from 10 years ago, and it kind of recaps on her troubled, you know, decade or two. Mm. David Burke writing in BBC's Radio 2 magazine, R2. So she's very honest, she's very sort of candid about how difficult she found. I mean, she talked about just, I didn't really have an adolescence almost, you know, just yeah. that kind of like having mates, yeah. uh, you know, aged 18. Suddenly we were we were on the world stage, you know, and, and, I, and, and I really missed out on something And people putting all kind important. of pressure on you that you, yeah. you know, would never have been prepared for. No, it? completely. Yeah. We are now going to move into the audio yep. interview. The I'm Not Bitter and Twisted tape, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in which um, mm. the Rollers manager... Tam Payton doth protest <gasps> a little bit too much. Um, let's start, let's go straight into a clip in which he actually talks about how he hurt he is by the roller's indifference to him. No Christmas cards, etc. I must say, I, I don't have anything against any member of the In fact, uh, I always found them very nice and pleasant guys. But I would like to say I've been very happy they have totally been ignored, but not even a phone call. I mean, we went over Christmas, and we New Year, and like a bit of a family to me. So not bitter and twisted. Unfortunately, it's fairly poor quality recording, but it's really, really worth listening to. He's a very peculiar bloke, it's Tam Payton. We'll play another clip at the end um, where he talks about the breakup of the band. He talks about how he's bankrupt, effectively, by them. He left when he was sacked by the band, he had no money. But he then had a run with a tax man. He wonders what happened to the rollers' money. Talks about Alan Longmuir's drink problem, Derek Longmuir's sex charges about his own conviction. Mm. Uh, as he says, no sodomy took place. <laughs> yeah. I was just watching uh, a video of uh, involved big breasts. <laughs> It's sort of very peculiar. It is absolutely... 1999, so it's ten years before he died. Yeah. Heart attack yeah. age, I think, seven. He, 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 he'd become a, a landlord of... Um, he'd basically buy to let, renting flats in, oh. in, in, in Edinburgh. That, that was that was his gig. Mm-hmm. And he, he keeps protesting that I could be bitter and twisted. I'm not bitter and twisted. And he's absolutely as bitter and twisted as it's possible to get. Yeah, there's something almost full staffing about this <laughs> this character who's, who's just been kind of dropped by mm. you know by by his his charges yeah. you know i mean i was astonished when the interviewer maureen payton no relation i hasten to add sent us some tapes recently and there was one marked town payton because because he's a sort of you know he's a notorious figure in the story mm, yeah. of, of pop music and in that kind of that sort of lineage of gay managers of pretty boys, which is such such, such an important it's element it's the of the history. It's the story of pop. It's, it's the history. Eh? It's it is the sort of story of pop. Absolutely. Yeah. Tam Payton. There's always something slightly unsavoury oh, about, so. about Tam Payton. So it's interesting. 
Um, at times, not so interesting hearing him talk because he's just <laughs> rather boring about money and tax. He and is stuff. absolutely obsessed about money. I mean, yeah, you know, no, he's you living know. in this bungalow, and more impact goes to visit him. And a bungalow know, in a walled garden. It's absolutely sounds extraordinary. That's is the basically that the the walls had preservation order on them because it was wow. an old walled garden. So he'd plonked a bungalow in the... In the walled. middle of the beautiful garden. And Maureen keeps pointing out, what, what, you could, right, so you can't take down the walls, but what about the barbed wire at the top? <gasps> he's got, he's got flashlights. And he was also, there's lots of kind of young men coming in and out of the room. I mean, I'd cut out all these interruptions. Oh, where, did you? Yes. Well, where, I keep hearing the door, the doorbell because well, 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 awful well, chime, well, uh, bungalow uh, chime. And he says to Maureen, oh, he's, you know, he's, he's my cleaner or he's my this or that. He, oh, so I didn't realise that. There's kid is some sort of, you know... Yes, yes harring. Harring sort of going. So anyway, yeah. that, 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 that's the audio. We'll play a, a clip, a first Were you clip ever a, a, a roller maniac? You Luckily, I was too young. You were too young to be a roller maniac. <laughs> yes, I, I mean, was. This is an extraordinary story. We must I mean, get um, Caroline Sullivan into your, your seat funding. Yeah. She wrote she's the book. The one, yeah. she, she did write the book. The book. Yeah. And, and there's been some great writing on being Bay City roller maniacs. Yeah. You know, as I just thought I'd, I'd ask if you have been. I mean, they were to me they were absolute anathema. I, mean, I couldn't, yeah. couldn't we, bear we the whole just idea of them. Despise them, you know. Yeah, I mean, they were they were just awful. But you sort of understood what a function they serve for young girls of a certain age. You know, they're, they're that non-threatening, almost androgynous, the, sexless the, boy, I, boy the, figure. There is a sort of curiosity, is that sort of the screamers, screaming fans, mm. sort of stopped screaming somewhere around 1966. Mm. And then there was a sort of five-year period when that sort of fandom just sort of disappeared. Yes. And then it sort of re-emerged in the early 70s, but obviously the Osmonds and people like that. Yes. Suddenly you've got this new wave yeah. of, of the, the screaming teen who've never quite gone away, have they? No, you know, um, well, in the, you know, Justin Bieber and so on, all the yeah. boy bands from America Absol- of, the last, of the last 25 years. Uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. absolutely. It, it will all, I think it will always... Uh, uh, but, but but as Rome, long as there's a manager looking... As long as there's a, <laughs> a stodgy manager, right? yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm, that that does seem to be the sort of light motif. Yes, the, yeah, that, as yeah. I said to you before, there is that connection. Malcolm McLaren quite admired what Tom Payton had done with basically. <laughs> he does, well, you're absolutely he, right. Yeah. He comes into the story that yeah. the, 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 the basically rollers had something to do with shaping the currents. Yeah. Well, I mean, for one yeah. thing, is that the rollers were. You could fairly safely say were utterly talentless. There is really <laughs> nothing going on there musically whatsoever. Mm. He points out that they didn't. They'd, they'd always make sure they had one of their own songs on the B side because yeah, then you made the money. same money mm. as the writer of the A side. But otherwise, everything was written by other people. They didn't even play on half their records and so on and so forth. So I think people like us who kind of grew up listening to like Yes, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you know, we, we just scratched our heads and thought, what. What's going on here? Yeah, know? we did. I mean, it's, it wasn't like I didn't like chart pop music. I mean, in that no, era, sure. I loved ABBA. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I loved yeah. all sorts of things. There were there, there were even like boy bands. That kind of, I mean, the, oh, Os- the Osmonds make yeah. it. One band, Apple, Wait, was well, a phenomenal record. We love the sweet. Yeah, yeah the sweet. The sweet. So, so, but the bass you wrote yeah, were <laughs> shit. It's mean, your favourite accent, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, so you're right. In fact, I used to love watching Top of the Pops in those days because a remarkable yes. amount of good stuff was on yeah. it. You know, but yeah. but Rollers, 
They, no, they, they really no. were the dregs. They no, were the they sort were of lowest yeah. denominator, really, of pretty yeah. boy teen pop. Anyway, and I, I, pretty I, I, is pushing it a bit as well. And they weren't, well, yeah, they weren't even that yeah. good looking. <laughs> well, well, I can't really tell from this picture. No, they were. They sort of merged with the Wombles, because that's how old I was. They sort of had the. Remember the Womble, Mike Bat Womble? They had the same outfits on, didn't they? Underground, overground, wombling free. The Wombles are women. We will turn our attentions to yes. Mr. Pringle. Were you about to say something critically important about no, the Wombles? No. Sorry. Yes. Um, <laughs> Mark, is now going, Mark is now going to talk us through some of the highlights uh, among the new pieces that are going into Roxback Pages well, this week. Well, I mean, the first piece is from what is currently my absolute favourite pop magazine, which is Rave from 1966. Oh, wonderful Rave. Yes. And, and it's a bit on drugs. Well, they say drugs. It's not drugs, it's speed. That mm. is the drug they are specifically talking about. Yeah. And that was a time when, obviously, mods were at their height and there was yep. a lot of speed around. Um, and they say, Getting pilled, blocked, zonked, bombed or stoned is simply an admission you can't cope with reality of life. With a pill, you can kid yourself for a while. Unfortunately, you can't kid others. And then they say, We say, leave it alone. If you're a natural swinger, why mess about with dangers you can neither understand nor control? If you're not, well, a drag on a drug is still a drag. <laughs> Uh, they, they also, ah, they also, the, 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 the piece is structured. That it starts off with a story of this girl who goes to a party, and her boy, this boy, her boyfriend, or some boy, gives her a pill, and then these two other girls get in a cat fight, and the whole party goes tits up. See <laughs> what pills? So they, they tell the story. Then they get quotes from various pop musicians as to what they think. And interestingly, John Entwistle, he's basically saying, well, you know, it's not bad, really. I mean, we, you know, we, <laughs> I've pre- lived on them for pre- ten years. Pretty much we're all doing it. Um, and the others are always kind of are predictably censorious. And then it ends up with that bit I just quoted. It's, fan- it's fantastic. 1966. 1966. And we know what happened to John Entwistle in there. <laughs> well, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> Las Vegas hotel room with a hooker. Yeah, and cocaine. Yeah. Last week we talked about the first part of John Sinclair's interview with Sun Ra from the Warren Forest Sun in 67 where we're running the second part this week I did the thing which I know that I really shouldn't do I imposed paragraphs because basically the way it's printed it's just one tract from Sun Ra a wall of words you just couldn't read and Mm. so this time I insisted I, I sort of inserted paragraphs where I thought they were suitable so any of you purists out there, academic purists, you can always look at the original and not look at our version of it. But I don't think believe me, mind too much. if you actually want to read it, our version's a hell of a lot easier to read. <laughs> um, going on to 1972, Los Angeles Free Press. Greg Shaw, one of our writers, one of our earliest writers, I believe, we got him on board, didn't we? He was one of the first guys to come on board, Rocks Back. Yeah, the late, great Greg Shaw. Reviewing Exile on Main Street, in which he reveals that basically he hated every record that the Stones had made since Beggar's Banquet. And his idea of Great Rolling Stones is like, between the buttons, the buttons, you know, yeah. um, he says, "Rip this joint may be the wildest thing they've done since Route 66, and it's easily the best cut on the album." Well, I mean, just you know, yeah. I'll, I'll leave that to hang there for a second. I think the Stones liked it better the other way, and so did I. It's a giant step from the manner decadence of their last few albums, from Beggar's Banquet on, to the almost genuine lawlessness of this. Although they're still a far cry from the barely controlled anarchy they started out with. It's a tough return, in addition to the barrier of advancing age. Like everyone else who lives through the past decade, they have a heavy freight of pretension and illusion of artistic grandeur to throw off. 
This may be the least pretentious album by a major group to come out in six years, but they've still got a long way to go. Well, that tells, tells you more about Greg's taste than anything else. Greg's aesthetic was very much rooted in the 60s, yes, I think. Totally, you know, so yes. anything after that had lost you know, what was yeah, for him yeah. the important idea I, I'd of say that. Pro- of pro- kind of, yeah. no, though the irony is he started off with a fanzine in, in hippie San Francisco, interviewing people like the dead and the uh, Jeff's there. Mojo Navigator Mojo. Rock and Roll News. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, uh, he, he did, he interviewed like Janet, Big Brother and the Holding yeah, Company yeah. in like 1966. Yes. And Country Joe and the Fish. That's, that's right. There's, there's a piece on the doors. It's before Rolling Stone. Yeah. It's one of the, it's, but his real know. aesthetic was, was, uh, was more kind of power pop. Bomb yes. was very much about that sort of power pop sound. So I would imagine that for him, Exile on Main Street got too far away from that sort of pre-psych, swinging London pop sound, the Andrew Lou Golden aesthetic. Of course, for many of us, Exile on Main Street is the absolute pinnacle of Rolling Stones music. I I, I contend it would make a great single album. We had an argument about this. But we certainly agree. (laughs) Broadly, yeah, we did have a slight... I got a bit tech. He did get tech. He did have a bit tech because he kept... Every other track he was describing filler, and I can listen. I just think it's, it's heresy. He's so it's cutting. heresy. So cutting. Um, but we broadly agree that Stones from Beggars through to Exile. Oh, fantastic! Is, we're, we're quite we're quite sort of uh, orthodox oh, on that front. Absolutely. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Are you a Stones fan? Yes, I is am. It too, yeah. I, I actually even like uh, the Satanic Majesty's request. Well, I would, wouldn't I? You would. You you would. Yes, I you would. would. If someone in this yeah. room yeah. is going to like that record. It had to be. Me. It had to be you. <laughs> it did. Well, that's funny, yeah. you know, they were mates with Kenneth Anger and there was yeah. a... Yes. Yeah. It's definitely interesting. Okay, well, moving, yeah. m- m- <laughs> moving on to Sounds in 1979 and, and Dave McCulloch interviews the Slits. Now, Dave McCulloch, we got him on board without officially getting him on board because no one knows where, no one knows he, where is. he is. He really? doesn't have any no, idea. No, 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 no. international man of mystery. He's, he's just disappeared. He just seems to disappear. So we're, we're running his stuff in the hope that he or his relatives come out of the woodwork. He'll come out of the woodwork and tell us to take everything off. Yes, well, oh. anyway, well, especially after he rereads what he wrote. Because this is the second interview I've posted of him, and both of these interviews kind of go tits up. The one with Joy Division from yeah. a couple of weeks ago, and this one with the Slits. It doesn't really go tits up, it's just that. He seems to be baffled by the people he's interviewing, and they seem right. to be baffled by him. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's very, not ideal, really, for a music yeah. journalist. It's strange. It? I, I mean, you well, know, he, uh, and he, Ari up he finds exasperating. Well, that's probably uh, which he, <laughs> yeah. he pro- possibly was. Uh, he, he obviously kind of rather fancies Viv, but then everyone did, didn't they? Um, <laughs> and they so, still do. And I they think. St- still, still do. do. Still do. Um, Moving on to... Uh, Can I just not... Yes, sorry. Slits, important to you, presumably, and yes. they come into this book, they of course. They do, because they were sort of in the shop with Jordan, yep. and Third mm. were an item for a while, and they all interchange with yeah. it, you know. Yeah. It's amazing how many brilliant people are in this tiny little yeah. space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, sometimes it, one thinks someone like Sid Vicious is just, oh, oh, I don't know, kind of about a sort of Neanderthal and politically sort of Well, he really divides people, but, doesn't he? Yeah. They either, he is the Marmite of the book, isn't he? People are either, he's a sensitive soul that was misunderstood, or he is. I think he was, oh, and we, we have this audio interview, and he actually does talk about the slits yes, in the audio. But, like, but, oh, I like the slits. But the thing about the audio interview is that he he is pretending 
pretending to be gormless, mm. much more gormless than he actually is. Yeah. And at one point, he does withering critique of Malcolm McLaren by saying, talking about Malcolm McLaren having this bit of art on the wall of his place in Clapham, Clapham Common, wherever Malcolm was living, and it's a picture of a chair, and Malcolm's going, and Sid says, Malcolm's talking about, it's about the space around the chair. Yeah, he's taking and, a purse. And, he, ta- and he nails it. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. so this is not a stupid man. No, this is, not this at is all. Interesting. No, and he got the slits, and he, yeah. and he understood the slits, and I think, you know, that's, we all know how important that was in terms of the punk landscape. It wasn't just about snotty, yeah. angry boys gobbing at people and ranting. Mm. It was it was a very inclusive uh, community. I always, I always liked the idea of the slits more than the reality of the slits. I mean, they were ambitious musically in a way that very few of their male confrères were. I mean, they were kind of post-punk before post-punk. Yes, definitely many ways, they were. Many uh, and I think a lot of more famous people since then took quite a lot from them, like yes. Culture Club. Yeah, you know the whole way that area up looks and the way that yeah, right, all, all kinds of things like that. Yeah. I just wish I liked the actual music they'd played more. Yeah. I mean, I think that album that they're actually promoting at Point Cut, Cut is pretty decent. Again, Dave McCulloch in the piece slightly sneers at it being almost overproduced by Dennis Bovell right. that he had actually knocked off too many of the rough edges. I think it's a pretty good record. Moving on to February 80, Rich Seawalls and Cream reviewing Stevie Wonder's Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants, which is a ghastly record. I mean, here it's egg of an album. This is the point where Stevie is rapidly plumbing into kind of irrelevance as a musician. So he opens this with Let's assume you didn't think Songs in the Key of Life was a total bust. It was overhyped for sure, overblown in part, a little simple in spots, a little dull, but it didn't contain much more than the usual amount of forgivable dead air that many a good double album has, and most of it was engaging, clever, happy, an upbeat holding pattern at a well-earned career plateau. Mm. At best, you thought, the next Stevie Wonder album would be rejuvenation, something exciting, hopefully something tighter, and at worst, it'd be a celebration at the same plateau. It wouldn't be bad, you know, just more the same, right? wrong, because this album is worse than you'd expect. It's the total bust that Songs in the Key of Life only hinted at. And, well, you know, that, mm. that, that's, I think, a spot. <laughs> well, it is one of the most self-indulgent things that, yeah. a, that a superstar has ever been permitted to do, I think. I mean, I don't think it's completely devoid of merit. There, there, are, interest, there are moments on it that are very beautiful, but, but I mean, I think he really did burrow up his own backside after, after yeah. that. I mean, yeah. Songs in the Key of Life is, is, is extraordinary. I mean, but, but again, probably being a good single album. Just to flag up, we, we, we will have a Stevie audio interview in the next. Yes. Uh, I think we're going to we're going to sort of time that for his birthday, which is sort of like early to mid May, isn't it? So so coming up will be will be a Stevie Wonder yeah. audio interview. Look out for that. Next piece is Paul Morley was sent up to interview of all bands girls' school by Enemy piece. in 1981. And, you know, Paul is the anti-rock man, you know. He kind of falls a bit in love with them. I you bet know. he does. Uh, um, he's drooling over he's Kelly. A, he's a girls' school rock the heavy metal stereotypes, mock the heavy metal rituals, resist the temptation of pop. I should be doing this in a Mancunian accent, which I can't pull off. Reduce the heavy metal... Do it in a Warsaw. Reduce the heavy metal pump, rise and cumbersome fall to minimal manageable levels. An ugly music becomes acceptable, still stationary. A nasty, nonsensical nuisance of a music becomes a part of pop. It's, it's very interesting interview because he, he basically I think he went up there and may have been sent up there to do, do a hatchet job yes. and came away sort of really rather liking them 
you know. I mean, as people, gen- well, they, genuinely like they it. They always come across as such a good life, yeah. don't they? Yeah. I mean, they, Lemmy loved them. Lemmy adored them. Yeah. Well, I mean, for, first of all, they're not a heavy metal band. They're a hard rock group. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what I'd characterise. I like my hard rock. I got my ACDC album. I do like so, my hard rock. Do I do like hard rock. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You worship we're, at the same all... altar as me, Mark. <laughs> 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 well, we're all making our Satan's hands sign. More pieces I want to brief talk about. This, this is hilarious. Simon Witcher was sent by ID to interview David Sylvian, and I proofed up the piece, and it had things like, "Are you dressing not to be noticed nowadays?" And David Sylvian says, "I dress for comfort. I've been wearing this kind of things for years: soft shoes, loose trousers, and shirts. Sometimes I wear the same clothes for years. The whole idea of presentation through clothes doesn't interest me. I can't take the idea of." public image seriously I don't follow any designers at which point Witcher says so your mum bought you those Japanese designer items you're wearing Sylvan <laughs> um, says I tend to do most of my shopping in Japan I'm not sure that I ever was ever conscious of fashion and Witcher says and I won a Nobel Peace Prize last year so, 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 so I, 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 I told Simon that I was running this piece and that it, how catty it was and he, he read it and we sometimes let our writers write a 2019 author's Intro. note. And so I got this from Simon. Just, you see, among other things, he says, I was a metrosexual kid from middle European background where Japan and XTC were undisputed gods of post-punk. But I'd never met anyone so insufferably precious, pretentious and generally begging for a good verbal kicking. But well, that would have been too easy. No, I thought, you're better than that, Simon. And so I proceeded to strain every sinew of my being to fight that urge and write a fair, neutral piece about my subject. After hitting newsstands, a photographer friend of mine was shooting Sylvian, who, on learning of our mutual acquaintance, insisted Ray this piece. I don't mind criticism, but that was just bad journalism. For years, I've regretted not having given Sylvian the print drubbing he deserved. But reading this now for the first time in 30-plus years, I realised that I'd indeed clearly failed to discuss him and his work with the kind of abusive respect to which he was accustomed. <laughs> um, it's, 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 ju- it's just just great. Very I mean, good. That is very, uh, very funny. Uh, and, so and, your uh, mother uh, bought you these Japanese. <laughs> 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 um, I mean, the whole, the whole piece is like that. I mean, I, I, do you like, is David Sylvian someone who's ever been on your radar? Or Japan? Oh, I liked that single ghost. I thought yeah. that mm. was... And, yeah, and that, I liked some Japan tracks, yeah. for sure. And the stuff he did with Richie Sakamoto. Some of that. Yeah, and he worked with Holger mm. Chuka of Cannes, yeah. of course, as well. I mean, I, I there's some credentials there, but, but he is I was never self- a massive fan. No. And also, no. I mean, He's rather precious. You know, he don't... was trying to do a Brian Ferry team. Well, it's well. Scott Engel. I mean, he is an absolute Scott Engel clone at times. I mean, when I was proofing that piece, I had to put up the record that he was actually promoting... Mm. It's absolutely ghastly. And he just he'd overdosed on his Scott, his Scott Walker. There's mm. no doubt about it. Last thing is Mal Peachy interviewing Steve Harley for Mail on Sunday in 93. It's funny enough, the coincidence is that in my Facebook feed of you know, five years ago, I posted that I, I just want to sl- slash my wrists because I've been um, digitising an audio interview with Steve Harley, an hour and a half audio interview with Steve Harley, and he's unbearable. And he... <laughs> He really was unbearable. And anyway, this is about his drug and drink hell after, after success, you know. Wow. Um, I think the bulk of the my... The old su- drug and drink hell. I know. I think the bulk of my success went up my nose. I did a lot of coke and drank a lot of brandy. I was bad company, you know. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyway, that's my, that's my contribution. Wow. You got anything? You- uh, oh, not much, but I'll just mention uh, two, three 
things um, from the last 20 or so years. Our very first piece about the ink spots. There was a giant ink spot shaped hole in the Rock Scott Pages library. And very important groups, sort of pre-rock and roll, pre-do-what, but they were one of the first really significant vocal groups to come out of America. Black America. Uh, Black America, yeah. So it's a piece by Tim Footman from 2001 on the Ink Spots. There's a piece on James Blunt, or Lance Corporal James Blunt, or <laughs> 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 from 2005, <laughs> just as he's trying to make he's, way, he's Soldier a bit, Boy. He's a bit of a blunt, really, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Tim Cooper in The Independent, sort of getting his head around the idea that a soldier could become a kind of legitimate pop star on the Back to Bedlam album is just out and suddenly, you know, there's the Screaming Girls. Back to Screaming Girls. Yes. Screaming for Soldier Boy. Lastly, a nice mojo piece by Lois Wilson who recently came on board about Dusty Springfield's Memphis album, which we adore. Dusty Memphis. So it's quite an, an interesting pretty- piece about the making of that record. She talks to the great American studio musicians, the late Reggie Young, yep. among others. There's great quotes about how shy and inadequate Dusty felt yep. in the studio you know there's a moment where Jerry Wexler is saying uh, Aretha stood there and, and, and Dusty just sort of crumbles yeah. and just like oh I, I can't do this I don't belong here what am I doing in Memphis but I mean we all think she was yeah. one of the great soul no, singers I, mean, I, I, I was reading this piece about the album she did afterwards for Atlantic which was mm. either wasn't released or was very briefly released it was a very different recording experience but it a, a similar sort of record done in New York and apparently she was wonderful and so on and so forth and you can't get that record now it's, no. it's, apparently it was, re, it was released as a, a, a rhino reissue of Dusty in Memphis it, it was released with that as a sort of twofer as a twofer and then it, it's, we love that word twofer we can get it in I, I want to hear this record it's called Faith or something like that. I can't remember what it's called. There's a, there's a, is this the Lost Album it's the Lost that Fred album. Della uh, yes, has written that, about? That's, exactly. That's, that's right. Um, yeah. Um, so, so, but yes, no, I do love her. I mean, mm. yeah, we, 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 we adore her. So many great records. We're playing that wonderful Bad Case of the Blues thing. She did stuff in Philly as well, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you know, year, you know, years later, she's working with the Pat Shop Boys. On I was asked to write a song for that album, and yeah. uh, I sort of failed to. <sighs> Bit got, like got not, too late. A bit like kind of not being shame on take, you. Not taking that part in Jubilee. You know, I failed not to not yeah. being Sebastian. Not being Sebastian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was offered a part in that too. I was shown, I was shown a production still, which was basically naked young men and writhing in the dust and sort of politely declined. <laughs> you could have been in that end scene. Jordan's at that end scene of, of Sebastian. Could have been rolling around. <laughs> the Diocletian's palace, <laughs> eating grapes and. Pretending to be in the Roman Empire. Yeah. I could have. I could have. Oh. Uh, anyway. These, 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 oh. these boats. But yes, Dusty and Big Dick are both re- on that Pulp Fiction. He did put some Dusty's flipping good tunes in yes. there. That's a bloody good film. I rewatched. And it did kickstart quite a good revival of vintage music as well. Yeah. A lot of re-releases came out I'm looking forward to Tarantino's big like Manson film which apparently it was meant to be finished in time for Cannes and it hasn't been finished in time for Cannes. I think it'll come out probably this summer. That sounds right up my It's got to come out this summer really in terms of the anniversary but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I think it's called. He he uses Scorsese is another great user of music in movies. He really uses music 
really well as part of the scene. It's, to you know, comment yeah. ironically yeah. on the. Yeah. I'm getting a nod from our producer. Same um, with being as we wrap this up. Someone's got to turn this into an actual yeah. podcast. Yeah. 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 Kathy's, thank you so much for oh, coming along. You, it was absolutely great, great having you here. Deep a joy, joy and a privilege, <laughs> Kathy. Uh, we really do appreciate it. So uh, it remains for us to say, please go and buy. Defying Gravity, Jordan's story, which is uh, Jordan Mooney with Kathy Unsworth. It is out this week. It's out on the 2nd of May officially. 2nd of May officially. It's not out this week. It it was supposed to be out this week. It was supposed to be out. But the the finishing touches. The finishing touches are worth it. Well, I've got an unrevised, unpublished proof here, but you have brought in a finished copy. Fabulous front cover by Graham We will feature in the podcast photograph. Absolutely. Just a joy to see you. Thanks again. And um, we will see you next week, everyone. Yep, see you then. And we're going to go out with a Tam Payton moaning about the Bay City Rollers again, (laughs) about the breakup (laughs) of the band. Bye. 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 If you hate me after all I say I mean, do you know how the band broke up? I mean, I would like to speak about that too. Yes, I really please, yeah. To, yeah. The band broke up with total jealousy of each other. Mm. Or certain men were so jealous of each other, they couldn't even get to be in the same room. Mm. That and happens a lot with a lot of bands, isn't it? And now they tell me they're all shaking hands and hugging each other. Just for the camera. <laughs> well, I don't know, just for the money, I'd say. Eh? Well, I mean, they've compromised their principles. I mean... I, I couldn't manage them. Why was I sacked? I was sacked because I wouldn't go on the road with them because they wanted to sack Les McKeon. Yeah. yeah. Do you think he was the most talented then? Well, I wouldn't say he was the most talented, but I said every, every one of them were talented. Mm-hmm. I, I went out to promote five stars. Yeah. And you took away one star, then I felt it was, and particularly the lead singer, yeah. You know, I felt it was, you know, it, the band couldn't survive. Yeah. Neither could Lady McEwen either. Yeah. And sure. the proof of the pudding is the habit. That was Tam Payton in conversation with Maureen Payton in 1999, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Kathy Unsworth, whose new book with Jordan, Defying Gravity, Jordan's Story, is out on May 2nd. You can find a link to pre-order it and find out about Cathy's other books at kathyunsworth.co.uk. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. As ever, you can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. <laughs>